another chance to gather as your people. God, we thank you that you have knitted us together as a body. And even more than being grateful for being knitted together to one another, we are grateful to be knit together with Christ as our head, as our loving Savior. God, thank you for sending your Spirit uh, to pour your love in our hearts and to cause us to cry out to you, Abba, Father. God, I pray that you would help us during this time to think uh, true thoughts about you. God, I pray you'd help me to speak and think clearly. God, I pray that you would help us, even as we listen, uh, to worship you in spirit and in truth. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we are continuing our series on the Trinity. Uh, week five... And uh, just today is my Christmas present to you. Today may include some of the um, most dense theological um, ideas that we've talked about in this series. So let me encourage you ahead of time. I'll read a couple of quotes from C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity. When C.S. Lewis wrote Mere Christianity, Mere, that's like lowest common denominator Christianity. It's broken up into four parts, and the whole fourth part is on the Trinity, okay? It's uh, the first chapter of that part is on the difference between making and begetting. What does it mean that Christ is eternally begotten of the Father? This is mere Christianity, okay? And this is what he says. There is no good complaining that these statements are difficult. Christianity claims to be telling us about another world, about something behind the world we can touch and hear and see. You may think the claim false, but if it were true, what it tells us would be bound to be difficult, at least as difficult as modern physics, and for the same reason. If Christianity was something we were making up, of course we could make it easier, but it is not. We cannot compete in simplicity, with people who are inventing religions. How could we? We are dealing with fact. Of course anyone can be simple if he has no facts to bother about. It's kind of cheeky, but I appreciate it. All right. The doctrine of the Trinity. There is one and only one living and true God who is the Lord. And this one God eternally exists as three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each of whom are fully God, each of whom shares in full in the same single, indivisible, divine nature and identity. The one true and living God is the blessed Trinity. So the main point of the whole series has been that the gospel and the Trinity go together. We know God is a trinity because He revealed that to us in the gospel when He accomplished our salvation. As John Owen said, printed on your handout, when God designed the great and glorious work of recovering fallen man and the saving of sinners, that's the gospel, to the praise of the glory of His grace, He appointed in His infinite wisdom two great means thereof. The one was the giving His Son for them, and the other was the giving His Spirit to them. 
And hereby was way made for the manifestation of the glory of the whole blessed Trinity, which is the utmost end of all the works of God. So the good news about how God saves sinners is that God sent God and God. The Father sent Son and Spirit to save us. And so God revealed He's a Trinity not just for the sake of sharing information about Himself, but God revealed He is a Trinity as He saved us. And then He saved us in order ultimately to, to graciously bring us into and give us a share in the love and glory and happiness that He's known within Himself for eternity in the fellowship of the Trinity. Um, we know God is the blessed Trinity because the Son came from the Father to dwell among us, and then the Spirit came to dwell in us. So the Trinity, I've tried to uh, labor to show you, the Trinity is not some brittle little doctrine that hangs in a very fragile way upon the proper interpretation of just a few random verses, as if it's just teetering on the edge of being unbiblical, and so you better make sure that you interpret five verses correctly. Uh, no, the whole Bible, the story of our redemption, upholds and testifies to the triune identity of God, because the Bible is the story of God sending His Son and Spirit to save. The Old Testament anticipated it. The New Testament proclaims it. So to get to the doctrine of the Trinity, you just need to ask some basic questions about God, beginning with your own salvation by God from sin. Okay, if you just start with, I've been saved by Jesus, and you're really only a couple of simple and massive questions away from the doctrine of the Trinity. Okay, I've been saved by Jesus. Well, who must Jesus be to save me like this? And then what must be true about God if that's who Jesus is? That's the doctrine of the Trinity. Okay. We've also thought together about who God is and the life that He lives within Himself eternally, before and above and apart from all worlds. And we saw God as perfect in love and perfect in glory and perfectly happy in Himself because He is a Trinity. God is a God of love because He's a Trinity. God is a God of grace because He's a Trinity. He is perfectly self-sufficient, perfectly happy, needs us for nothing because He's a Trinity. And that's why His grace is utterly gracious, bottomlessly gracious. It's a perfectly free gift. So God's triunity grounds His self-sufficiency. So, therefore, God's triunity grounds His grace. Uh, we've seen that our salvation is a work of God the Trinity through and through. Um, the blessed Trinity accomplished our salvation from beginning to end. And I want to start this week by picking up where we left off last time, two weeks ago, showing how our salvation, accomplished by the work of Christ, was actually a work of the whole Trinity every step of the way. Um, where we left off last time, perhaps you remember that uh, our triune God was the accomplisher of salvation. That's not just true in the big picture that God sent the Son and the Spirit, but it's also true in the specifics that every step of the way of Christ's saving work, 
that, that you can look at the Bible's testimony to Christ's incarnation, to Christ's ministry, to Christ's death, to His resurrection, to His ascension, to His session, to His pouring forth the Spirit. In each of these steps of Christ's work, the whole Trinity is at work, winning salvation for us. So I won't go back through all those verses like we did last week, but um, we need to, to start by remembering that truth. That's what we're going to build upon. All of the saving work of the Son, which is the gospel, each step was accomplished by the God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. So just for the sake of Christmas, one example, the incarnation, right? The Son became incarnate, not the Father, not the Spirit. So the Son was distinctly the person of the Godhead who became incarnate. But even so, the incarnation of the Son was a thoroughly Trinitarian work. We confess the Son was conceived by the Holy Spirit. The Son became incarnate as one sent from the Father. And we could do this with, with um, every facet of the work of Christ. So in today's lesson, I'm going to press deeper into the ways that our salvation reveals God's Trinitarian nature. One God in three persons. So first, we see there is one and only one true and living God when we look at God's saving acts and see inseparable operations. Right? Inseparable operations. So just like... Um, Every work of Christ, every step of the way is a work of God the Trinity. That's true for all of the works of God, not just the work of Christ, and not just God's works of salvation, but all of God's works, all of God's works in the world are works of the triune God. And when you think about it, of course they are. There's no such thing as a non-Trinitarian work of God, because there's no such thing as a non-Trinitarian God. There's no such thing as a non-Trinitarian version of God. There's no such thing as a non-Trinitarian work of God. God is the blessed Trinity. That's who He is, irreducibly so, essentially so. And so another way to say this truth of inseparable operations is all of the external works of God are indivisible. So, to speak of inseparable, you can't take them apart, operations, to put that another way, is to speak of undivided works. Okay. First, what do I mean by external works? By external works, I mean all of everything God does outside of Himself. Everything God does with respect to the things He's made, creation, salvation, providence. Um, we say external works of God to contrast those works of God that are just Him living His own inner life, uh, the love and glory that He enjoys within the fellowship of the Trinity. So all of the works of God in the world, in the created order, are works of the Father, Son, and Spirit indivisibly, inseparably so. There is not even the possibility of division because... There is only one God, one being, one divine nature, one divine wisdom, one divine power, mind, and will. 
And the Father, Son, and Spirit each share in full in this single divine nature. You can't divide up God into thirds. Uh, You can't multiply God into three and say that one of those multiples or one of those uh, quotients, is that the division word, acts independently upon the world. Okay? No, God acts. God is who He is. And so when God acts, God acts as He is. So we don't want to look at salvation and just say the Father accomplished His part of it, the Son accomplished His part of it, the Spirit accomplished His part of it, as if these were three independent characters doing three independent works that contribute to one broad collaborative effort called, called salvation, right? Like, um, like three people working on a school project or something. Well, if these are three distinct beings acting independently of one another in creation, then we are talking about three gods. But there is one God, one divine power. The Son cannot and does not act independent of Father and Spirit. The Father could not and does not act independent of Son and Spirit because they are not independent beings. And so they act indivisibly in every external action. You can't say, for example, the Father and Son accomplished this part of salvation, but the Spirit sat this one out, as if the Spirit could sit out of the being of God momentarily. If He could, He would not be God. Scott Swain summarizes like this, because the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are one simple, and simple means um, can't be divided up, indivisible. Because the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are one simple God, their actions outside of themselves are indivisible operations. The three persons do not merely cooperate, I said that strangely, cooperate in their external works as if each person contributed his distinctive part to a larger operational whole. All of God's external works, from creation to consummation, are works of the three divine persons enacting one divine power, ordered by one divine wisdom, expressing one divine goodness, and manifesting one divine glory. Yes. The unity of God is a much stronger unity than just a unity of purpose. Like we can have a unity of purpose if we're all on the same page about what needs to be done and we're committed to doing it together. The unity of God is stronger. And the doctrine of inseparable operations highlights how God's saving acts come from one who truly is one God. The doctrine of inseparable operations allows us to confess with the saints from all ages that the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, we saw last week, and I've alluded to it briefly, how this was true for the ministry of Christ. The the saving works of the Son are indivisible operations of the triune God. Uh, But so too, we could say, are the works of the Spirit. Uh, We won't take a deep dive into this, but, but I'll just give two examples to illustrate. As seen in the work of Christ, so too the saving work of the Spirit are indivisible works of the triune 
God. Example one, the Spirit's indwelling the church. So, the church is the temple of God. The the Spirit of God dwells in us. We together have been made the special dwelling place of God on earth because the Spirit of God poured out at Pentecost, sent from the Father and Son, indwells us. Okay, there are lots of Bible verses that talk about the Spirit indwelling us. There are many others that talk about Christ being in us. There are even a few verses that mention the Father being in us as well. But, but I'll focus only on uh, just those verses that talk about those realities in conjunction with one another. So first, in John 14, Jesus is speaking to His disciples in the upper room. It's called the Upper Room Discourse. John 13 through uh, 16 or 17, depending on how you want to divide it. And this, these three or four chapters of John are like the Trinitarian tornado. It is, it is fantastic. So many of our references today come from this little slice of the Gospel of John. It's like the brightest beam of Trinitarian light uh, that we have in the whole Bible. John 14, 16. Jesus tells His disciples, I will ask the Father, and He will give you another helper. So, if we just, I mean, I could, I could do this the whole time, but just if you are wearing Trinitarian glasses, you, you see this all the time, like every so many half sentences of the Bible, oh, there's all three persons of the Trinity, and I, the Son, will ask the Father, and He will give you another helper. Father, Son, Spirit. Happens all the time. All right. He will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him. And here's what I wanted to point out mainly in these verses. For He dwells with you and will be in you. So there's the promise that the Spirit will indwell God's people from Jesus. Well, then immediately after the promise of the indwelling Spirit, Jesus starts talking about He Himself being in His people. In verse 20, In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. And then a few verses later, Jesus indicates the Father too will participate in this indwelling work. Verse 23, Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. So the Spirit will dwell in us, but when this happens, because the, as Jesus taught us, because the Father is in the Son, and the Son is in the Father, and the Father and Son are in the Spirit... When the Spirit comes to dwell in us, it can also be said rightly that, that God and Christ dwell in us as well. Uh, John teaches this same thing in his first epistle, 1 John four twelve. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us. To abide is like to live. Think of abode, it means house. Abide is the verb form of the noun abode. If God abides in us, takes up residence in us, and His love is perfected in us, 
By this we know that we abide in Him, and God abides in us, because He has given us of His Spirit. To have the Spirit in you is to have God taking up residence in you. Ephesians 2, Ephesians 2.22 says, In Christ you are being built together into a dwelling place for God. How so? By the Spirit. Uh, Listen to how Romans 8 talks interchangeably about the Spirit being in us and Christ being in us. Romans 8, 9. You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, the Spirit of the Father, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ the Spirit of the Son, does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him, who raised Jesus from the dead, dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So, in three verses, Paul talks about the indwelling Spirit and describes that reality in these ways. The Spirit of God dwells in you. The Spirit of Christ dwells in you. Christ is in you. The Spirit of Him who raised Christ from the dead is in you. And then God's Spirit dwells in you. Now, this is not true because the Spirit is the Son or the Spirit is the Father, as if there are no distinctions between the persons, but rather this is because Father, Son, and Spirit are distinct persons within the unity of the one single God. So, indwelling can rightly be seen as a special work of the Spirit, but at the same time, at the same time, it is and must be an indivisible work accomplished by the whole blessed Trinity. Another example, the Spirit's empowering of the church. Uh, The church receives gifts from God that allow us to serve one another and build each other up and and help each other grow to be more and more like Christ. And those are called spiritual gifts. They're called spiritual gifts. They're the gifts of the Spirit. But, But these... Uh, There is a sense in which these gifts of the Spirit are inseparably given by the triune God. 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 6. This is an amazing little set of verses. Like Paul says the same thing three times just for the sake of making a Trinitarian point. 1 Corinthians 12, 4. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son. And there are varieties of activities, but is the same God, the Father, who empowers them all in everyone. So, so in these verses, you know, Paul's not trying to make hard distinctions between the gifts of the Spirit and the various services of the Lord Jesus and the activities of God the Father. Though again, it's closer to the case to say Paul's 
basically referring to the same reality. The gifts come from the same Spirit, the same Lord, the same God. So the other verses listed on your handout show how this work of sovereignly distributing gifts to church members is attributed to each person of the Godhead. And yet, even so, it's proper for this work to be uniquely, most often, just attributed to the Spirit, because this work of God um, most uniquely reveals what is unique about the Spirit, which is a whole another train of thought, which we're not going down. So, to sum up this first main point, God's works, because of inseparable operations, demonstrate the unity of the Godhead. So, God's ways in the world manifest this. All the external works of God are indivisibly accomplished by Father, Son, and Spirit. And so, that might be difficult to wrap your head around, but I've tried to say it like 25 times to um, hopefully not burden you, but to help you. All right, it's halftime. Can we do it? All right, God's works in the world not only show His unity, they also show His threeness. And Trinity is just like Latin for threeness. So, um, Jesus taught us to count to three in the doctrine of God when He said, baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Spirit. So, yes, the threeness of God is very clearly and explicitly in the Bible, the, the Trinity. All right. Um, I got that from Fred Sanders, like a lot of this stuff. Um, <clears throat> so, God's works in the world not only show His unity, but, but show His threeness. God, the triune God's external works are undivided, but they are not undifferentiated. Okay? They're, they're um, inseparable, but they're not indistinct, which, by which I mean within God's uh, undivided works in the world, we can see a certain pattern of relations emerge. As, as Father, Son, and Spirit work inseparably as one inseparable God, there is a certain order, a, a certain distinction and differentiation and pattern about how they're working. And the distinctions of the persons are shown in ways that demonstrate the personal attributes unique to each person of the Godhead. So it really is amazing how consistent this is in the Bible. Consistently, the Father works through the Son by the Spirit. I mean, if, if, if I said something like, if you've read the Bible, you, you've been in church, if I said something like, the Son sent the Father, you would go, that's, whoa. That sounds really weird. That can't be right because you just know intuitively that there's a certain fixed pattern uh, about God's working in the world, and it always goes with the grain, and this is the grain, that the Father works through the Son by the Spirit. That's true in creation. 
in making the heavens and the earth. The Father works through the Son by the Spirit. It's true in providence, how God sustains and upholds the world. In sustaining all the created order, the Father works through the Son by the Spirit. Now, you might hear that, put, that truth put different ways with different prepositions other than through and by. You can throw in in there because prepositions can mean like 25 different things. So, um, don't be disturbed if you know, I, I mix up that cadence a little bit. But the same basic pattern is described. Um, this is certainly true in salvation, that the Father works through the Son by the Spirit. It's true for, for revelation, how God reveals Himself. For example, in the inspiration of the Bible, the Father works through the Son by the Spirit consistently. This is on your handout here. The Father works through the Son and Spirit, but from none. And the Son works from the Father and through the Spirit. And the Spirit works from the Father and the Son. And it is amazing. These patterns are never reversed in God's acts. Never. It's, it's almost as if God is revealing what He's really like when He acts among us. He is. So His works are undivided, but not undifferentiated. There are so many verses that I could give to illustrate this. And no doubt many of you might be thinking of examples now of verses that fit into this uh, order. Um, but just a couple that I listed on your handout. The first one showing especially how the Son works from the Father and the Father through the Son. John 14, 8, classic passage. The disciple Philip says to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. (coughs) A strong statement of unity and identity. Jesus says things like, I and the Father are one. The Father is in me, and I am in the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But the doctrine of the Trinity is that the Son never says, I am the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Here's an example of the Son working from the Father. The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does His works. The Father works through the Son. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Uh, another verse, and, and this shows how the Spirit works from the Father and the Son. In John 16, Jesus speaking to His disciples. This, this is a neat set of verses. You're going to like this, some of you. <clears throat> John 16, 12. I still have Jesus speaking to His disciples in, in the Trinitarian tornado, the upper room discourse. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. <laughs> That's somewhat appropriate for this occasion. When the Spirit of truth comes, listen, the Spirit will guide you into all truth. For the Spirit will not speak on His own authority. Jesus just said that about Himself with respect to the Father. Now He's saying that about the Spirit with respect to Him. 
The Spirit will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. The Spirit will glorify the Son, Jesus says, for He will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Spirit will take what is the Son's and declare it to us. Jesus says, all that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said, He will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is the Son's, and the Spirit will share truth with us as He speaks all that the Son has in Himself, which is from the Father to us. John 5. I had to throw this one in here. This, this isn't on your handout. You might want to write it down. John 5, 19 through 23. John 5, 19 through 23. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. So that verse freaks you out, right? If, if you believe the, Spirit is, the Son is fully God, unless you understand the Son's unique personal characteristics in the Godhead, that He always works from the Father through the Spirit. The Son works from the Father. He says, I can do nothing of my own accord. For whatever the, whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. There's inseparable operations. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. And greater works than these He will show Him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. For the... F- Inseparable operations again. Verse 22, for the Father judges no one. Again, if you don't understand uh, this, you know, basic ordering of God's Trinitarian works, you think that is a strange thing to say of someone who is fully God. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. The Father works through the Son. That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. They are equally worthy of our glory and honor and confidence and love. They're fully God. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. So God's indivisible works in creation and in salvation show not only that He is one God, indivisible, but they also show that God exists as a Son from a Father and a Spirit from the Son and Father. We're building toward that conclusion. <clears throat> I, I feel the excitement. I want now uh, to consider returning to one of the main themes of our series, the divine missions. Remember, mission just means the sending. The Father sent the Son. The Father sent the Spirit. That's the mission of the Son, the mission of the Spirit. Okay? So, this, the divine sendings of Son and Spirit the way God has saved us, okay, Uh, in this twofold sending, shows us not only that there are three persons in God, but also shows us something of how the three relate to one another. Of course, these sendings are the gospel of our salvation. The Father sends the Son in Spirit. We've talked about many times. Galatians 4, 4. 
and following a great Christmas text to read around the table. In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son to be born of a woman, born under the law, that He might redeem those who are under the law. And God sent forth the Spirit of His Son. Uh, There's the Trinity in four words, Spirit of His Son. The Father sends the Son in Spirit. The Son is sent by the Father, which the Gospel of John says a gazillion times. And the Son sends the Spirit together with the Father. The Spirit is sent by the Father and the Son. And um, I won't read you know, all the verses in uh, these, <clears throat> this section because you can read them and they say something like, the Father sent me. But the way that Jesus talks about the sending of the Spirit in the upper room discourse is worthy of us slowing down on. So, um, in John 14, would someone mind getting me another little water out of the closet? These, it only has eight fluid ounces, so I'm done with this one. Thank you, Phil. Um, Again, the upper room discourse. Where else? John 14, 16, Jesus speaking to his disciples, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. So the Father gives the Spirit, the Father sends the Spirit, but he does so through the Son's request or asking. Thank you, brother. A friend of mine one time when he was preaching, um, Someone brought him a cup of water, and in the middle of his sermon, because he was kind of coffee, and he said, uh, you shall receive a prophet's reward. You know, there's the verse, if anyone brings a prophet a cup of water, he receives, okay. (laughs) Sorry, I'm a cessationist, so you don't get a prophet's reward. Um, 14.26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit... Whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. Okay, so again, the Father is sending the Spirit, but he does so in the name of the Son. And then John 15, 26. But but when the Helper comes, whom I, the Son, will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth... Who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So here the Son will send the Spirit, but the Son will send the Spirit as from the Father. John 16, 7, Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, which is a, would be a shocking thing and a disturbing thing if you didn't understand God's Trinitarian ways. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. So if the Son does not go, the Spirit will not come. But if the Son does go, the Son will send the Spirit. And this going that Jesus talks about is none other than, I go to the Father. So the Son, again, sends the Spirit, but the Son sends the Spirit only in that He goes to the Father. So, the sending of the Spirit is is another beautiful case study 
of how both the unity and threeness of God are manifest in God's works, inseparable and, and distinct persons. All right, so saving missions reveal eternal processions. All right, we're pressing further back and further in and higher up. <clears throat> in saving us, God not only showed He is triune, He also revealed to us what characterizes and constitutes that triunity. So catch this. Here's the thesis of this section. Um, the fromness by, of the Son, by that means the Son is from the Father, okay? The fromness of the Son in the gospel reveals and flows out of a fromness of the Son in God's eternal inner life. And the fromness of the Spirit in the gospel reveals and flows out of a fromness of the Spirit in God's eternal inner life. And that was, that was a bad teaching decision. It's like when I wanted to make clear the thesis of this section, to use a, a non-word like fromness. But I'm sorry about that if that was incomprehensible. Hopefully it'll make sense as we go on now. All right, God acts as God is. God's works reveal God's being. The gospel of the sent Son and the sent Spirit shows that God exists eternally as the Son from the Father and the Spirit from the Son and Father. So sometimes we may think about the Trinity as if the three persons of the Godhead are just the great, anonymous, undifferentiated three. Like there are three persons, each of whom are fully God, and, you know, they are named Father, Son, and Spirit, sure, but they may as well have just been named the three brothers because we do not recognize the personal uh, characteristic that is proper and unique for each. God did not randomly name Himself among us, Father, Son, and Spirit. It is no accident that the Blessed Trinity did not reveal Himself as one God eternally existing as three brothers, each of whom are fully God. Eternally, the Father is Father. He is Father to the Son. Eternally, the Father fathers the Son. And the Bible word for that is begetting. Eternally, the Son is the Son. He is sonned by the Father. You keep using non-words. He is begotten of the Father. Eternally, the Spirit is the Spirit. He is the Spirit of God. He is the Spirit of the Son. Eternally, the Spirit is spirated or breathed forth by the Father and Son. He proceeds from the Father and Son eternally within the life of God. So to speak of an eternal begetting and an eternal breathing forth within God, these are deep, incomprehensible waters. A couple things on that note. Surely... These are to be recognized as just analogies that God uses to communicate Himself to us in an accommodated way, in a kind, of, a kind act of condescension. Because we are finite creatures, we can't comprehend Him in full. So on the one hand, we admit these are only something like analogies of God's being 
and God's inner life, and so we don't try and read into these things too much. But on the other hand, these are the perfect analogies to use because God chose them for Himself when He revealed Himself to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So the names of the members of the Trinity, as well as the missions of the Son and Spirit, which is the gospel, these reveal what has classically been called eternal relations of origin or eternal processions. The Father is of none. The Son is of or from the Father, and the Spirit from the Father and Son. The Son proceeds as the begotten one. The Spirit proceeds not as one begotten, but as the Spirit. And these are the internal, eternal, divine processions that are the perfectly full and blessed life of God. And I'll say it again. These are the internal, eternal, divine processions that are the perfectly full and blessed life of God. Um, And I'm sure I need to give Fred Sanders credit for that sentence, even though I didn't quote him. So some of you may be uncomfortable listening to talk like this about God's being. Are we being too bold to assert these things? I would argue that it's actually... um, A bolder move not to teach and believe in these eternal processions within God. Because the one who denies these things is so bold as to declare that the church throughout her history has been wrong about this. The one who denies these things boldly declares that the Nicene Creed interprets the Bible wrong. So if you're convinced by the Bible that that's true, sola scriptura, I'm with you. Uh, have your conscience bound to the Word of God. Um, but you should, you should depart from like, the, the virtual universal consensus of church history with fear and trembling. So, I, I feel this is a somewhat humble, non-bold kind of move. All right. So, the eternal processions, the triunity of God's eternal life. John 5, 26. Now, we talked about this some in week two, so... This is not a new concept for some of you. John 5, 26, as the Father has life in Himself, a self-existing deity, as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. So this verse highlights also the, the Father being of none and the eternal generation of the Son. The Son also has life in Himself, like the Father does. The Son is self-existing deity. Yet somehow, mysteriously, this is true of the Son because the Father grants it to Him. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. And our modern English translations are wrong, um, I think, to translate uh, out of texts like John 1.14, John 1.18, John 3.16, instead of the only begotten Son, to say the only Son. Right? And the King James says, hear, hear. Uh, the main metaphor used to speak of this reality in the Bible is that of a son from a father. But many others are used as well. The son is also called the Word of God. Okay? A word uttered by a divine speaker. The image of God that uh, comes forth from a divine exemplar. The radiance of the glory of God. 
So he's the shining forth of the shining beauty of God. He is the light of the glory of God. He is the wisdom of God. He is a true God of true God and light from light eternal. Both words in the phrase eternal begetting are important. This is an eternal begetting. There was never a point in time when the Father begot the Son. The Father has always eternally been the Father begetting the Son. The Son has always eternally been the Son begotten of the Father. The Son is not a creation of the Father. C.S. Lewis explains these things in mere Christianity. And the language of begottenness makes the same point. Okay, we, we say that the Son is begotten, not made. Maybe you've never said that if you've never said the Nicene Creed. Um, that's, a, that's a biblical judgment. He is begotten, not made. To, to, be, to beget someone is to produce one who shares your nature, to produce one who's fully like you. But to make or create someone or something is to produce something that's not fully like you, that doesn't share a nature like yours. So C.S. Lewis says, you know, beavers beget beavers, and beaver, beavers make dams and rivers, okay? Um, the son is begotten, not made, which means he shares the nature of God. He is fully like God. He is fully God. If the Son were made or a created one, He would not be God like God is. So you can see this in that we humans are made in the image of God. Christ is also called the image of God. But Christ is never said to be made in the image of God. In fact, in Genesis 5... It says that um, when God created man, He made him in the likeness of God. And then when Adam had lived, He begot a son in His own likeness, after His image. So Adam begets a son in His image and likeness. His son shares His nature, but obviously not in the same way because they're distinct beings, okay? But, but God creates or makes man in His image doesn't beget man in his image because he doesn't, right? We are not God. We don't share in full in the divine nature. So the eternal begetting of the Son affirms that the Son is God by nature and not by adoption. Now, okay, in these processions within God, the divine nature is not multiplied or divided, but, but rather communicated in such a manner that the same single divine nature is shared in full. And Fred Sanders says that that this eternal, internal procession is some kind of proceeding of God from God that results in unimaginably perfect unity rather than scattering diversity. How does that work? We haven't been told. And so at this point, we reach the end of what has been revealed. And so we lay our hands over our mouth and we bow our head to the dust and we worship this God. Um, Luther says something to the effect of, you know, if you, uh, to, to affirm that the eternal begetting of the Son, you have done well. But if you ask uh, in what manner is this begetting accomplished, accomplished, what does this mean, how does this work? He says, that is a question over which angels have tripped and broken their necks. In classic Luther. 
The eternal begetting of the Son is a beautiful doctrine because it teaches us that for forever, God is a life-giving Father. God is a Father begetting and loving a Son in the love of their Spirit. Michael Reeves, in Delighting in the Trinity, makes a great Christmas gift, says, what does it mean that God is a Father? Well, first of all, it does actually mean something. Not all names do. My dog is called Max, but that doesn't really tell you anything about him. But the Father is called Father because He is a Father. And a Father is a person who gives life, who begets children. Now, that insight is like a stick of dynamite in all our thoughts about God. For if before all things God was eternally a Father, then this God is an inherently outgoing, life-giving God. He did not give life for the first time when He decided to create. From eternity, He has been life-giving, loving and giving out His life and being to the Son. So at the bottom, there is the Father. And that means a lively God of love, a God who is no envious, life-hoarding miser, but who delights to give out His life and being to His Son. Having such a God of love happily changes everything. The Holy Spirit's eternal procession is not described in nearly as rich and varied manner in the Bible as the Son's is, and that's okay. That's true of almost every part of the Bible's witness to the Spirit relative to that of the Son, okay? So, the Bible is perfect, and we don't need to feel like we need to improve upon it. When the Bible says a lot about the Father, a lot about the Son, you say, oh, God, you forgot the Spirit in this verse. No, God didn't, okay? Um, The Bible's witness concerning God, His self-testimony is perfect, okay? So, it's okay that um, we have a more blurry picture of the Spirit's procession than of the Son's begetting. But it is taught, uh, John 15, 26, the Spirit proceeds from the Father. And furthermore, the fact that He's called the Spirit of God, or the Spirit of the Lord, or the Spirit of the Father, or the Spirit of Christ, or the Spirit of the Son, or the Spirit of Jesus, or the Spirit of Jesus Christ. These are all from Bible verses. Um, in Romans 8 9, right, one verse refers to the Spirit three different ways. The Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ. So, uh, also, by the fact that Father and Son send the Spirit, and because God acts as God is, I think the Spirit's eternal procession is clearly taught in the Bible. All right, I added the Westminster Confession of Faith here. In the unity of the Godhead, there are three persons of one substance, power, and eternity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. The Holy Spirit eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. So I put that there just so you know. You know, I'm not weird. Um, We're weird for not talking about these things. This is the last thing I want to point out. And I know someone's someone's watch just told me, you're done. But 
Um, the saving missions reveal the eternal processions. And so the gospel is the shape of the Trinity. Shape. Okay. So as the Father sent His Son and His Spirit to accomplish salvation, that mirrors or follows the shape of God's own triune life of a Son from a Father and a Spirit from Father and Son. And so the gospel, the accomplishment of our salvation, is the extension in time of, of a coming forth within God of the Son and Spirit. Um, this is an amazing truth that the way that God accomplished salvation was by just being Himself among us and sending a Son from a Father and a Spirit from Father and Son. <clears throat> So, um, conclusion of Merry Christmas, Micah 5.2, it's a prophecy about the coming Christ in Bethlehem. See if you can find the eternal generation of the Son in there, and the Nicene Creed. Read it over Christmas. And the one who was born, incarnate by the Holy Spirit, who is that one? That starts, it starts in the Nicene Creed as who? Who came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit and was made man? Well, how does the creed, interpreting the Bible, introduce the one who came down from heaven and was made man, made incarnate? Let's pray. God, thank You for revealing Yourself to us. God, I pray that um, if at any point we have stepped beyond what You have revealed I pray that you would uh, forgive me and help us all to forget those things. God, I pray that if we have still stopped short in some ways of what you have revealed, give us grace and diligence and hunger to continue to press into these truths so that we would understand the things that you have freely revealed to us. Thank you for saving us. Thank you, God, for revealing the glory of the whole blessed Trinity. What a privilege for us to know You and to be loved by You and, and by Your grace uh, to love You truly. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.